Hello, I'm Colin Green, and you are listening to Spike Pit. Hello, hello, I've got something a little bit different for you today. It's an overview. Don't do too many overviews. This one is for Eldritch Tales, Lovecraftian white box role-playing game by Joe Salvador of Raven God Games. I don't want to mess about, so let's get straight into it. Following a foreword by James Bond, we get straight into an introduction of Mythos Earth in the 1920s. It gives you a bit of Lovecraftian flavour, talks about some of the locations, there's a map of Arkham, and you know it sets sets the scene nicely uh, 18 pages doesn't doesn't go overboard and then we dive straight into chapter 1 basics chapter 1 the basics is exactly that it talks about the basics of playing the game dice attributes prime attributes modifiers attribute feats an example of how that works there are some examples of how you might use the feats. So a strength feat is made when the character attempts to lift or carry heavy objects, bend or break strong materials, maintain a hold on something, climb difficult obstacles, leap long distances or perform any other similar feat. It introduces this idea of class, skills. Um, these are a number of skills which can increase your chance of success when performing an attribute feat and they're talked about more in chapter five there's a note about occupations which are an optional rule in this design chapter two deals with character creation pretty standard stuff if you're familiar with white box dnd being a lovecraftian mythos game you have uh, one of your secondary abilities is insanity there's also mythos law then we have the classes the first of which is the antiquarian a learned scholar and seeker of knowledge the antiquarian has a deep understanding of the sciences ancient mysteries and forgotten law each of the classes has a list of abilities starting off with class skills so antiquarians are educated in knowledge so history, literature and mythology, research and may choose either appraisal or writing. When attempting an attribute feat that involves one of these skills, the antiquarian gains a plus one bonus to the roll. This bonus increases to plus two at fourth level. In addition to this, as a linguist, they gain one additional language at first level and another at third and fifth levels. Antiquarians may choose ancient or dead languages as well as contemporary languages. They, are also, uh, they also have the researcher ability. When presented with some difficult question or impossible mystery that you cannot immediately solve, the antiquarian can usually find an answer or clue to help the investigation. The antiquarian takes a minimum of one D3 days to investigate the matter, visiting libraries, interviewing associates, collecting witness accounts and poring over dusty tomes, after which the referee can share whatever information he deems appropriate. Then it talks about saving throws, weapons and armour, contacts and an XP bonus for intelligence. 
The uh, contacts uh, are something we'll come on to, but I really like this idea, and the antiquarian begins with two academic contacts. The opportunist is the next character class, whether streetwise, scoundrels, globetrotting treasure hunters or gentlemen rogues, opportunists are individuals who have a sense of adventure, a desire for notoriety and an incurable wanderlust. I'm not going to go through all the abilities, suffice to say that they are structured in a similar way to the antiquarian. The next class is the socialite. Socialites are individuals who rely on their personalities, charisma and speaking ability to accomplish their goals. A sneaky con artist, a fervent preacher, a military officer, an actress or an accomplished politician are all examples of socialites. And I managed to miss one, the combatant. Combatants are individuals trained in the martial ways. They may be soldiers, mercenaries, brawlers, bodyguards, boxers, martial artists, criminal thugs, or even rowdy sailors. And that's the four classes. Once you've got all your characters sorted out, it's time to look at character relationships. You might be able to just sit down as a group and, and work this stuff out, but handily there is a D20 table that you can roll on. I think it's a good little icebreaker if you're at a con and maybe people don't know what to say just roll the dice and you apply this to the person on your right i'll give you an example we rolled a five you and the character did something terrible which you regret what was it moving on to secondary attributes got hit points they're pretty standard stuff but insanity insanity scores start at zero and the maximum is equal to your wisdom. So this is, in Eldritch Tales, if you, you, you're gonna learn about forbidden secrets and experience mind-numbing terror, this slowly drives you mad. You track this with your insanity score. And of course, with a Mythos game, you need Mythos Law. You have a, a Mythos Law rating that evaluates how much a character knows about mythos how steeped they are in the unspeakable mythos secrets your score rises as you read forbidden tomes witness impossible horrors or your character is otherwise exposed to mythos or the learning of cosmic truths generally you're going to start with a mythos score of zero and Mythos Law provides you a bonus to any checks concerning Mythos knowledge, spell checks, uh, as well as a bonus to saving throws versus insanity, where Mythos is the cause. So if you've got a Mythos Law score of 0 to 10, you'll get no modifier. 11 to 30 plus 1, 31 to 50 is plus 2, 51 and above is plus 3. Finally, the finishing touches. You give your character the name, describe the appearance, create a bit of background information, etc. And it gives you a few questions that you can answer to help you out with that. Once again, handy if you're, you know, you're, you're drawing a bit of a blank. And I was impressed to find little touches like that. A, a very, it's a very practical rule set with lots of little tools and things to help you out 
as you're kind of getting involved with the game. Next chapter is chapter three, contacts. I really like the contacts section. I like contacts in games in the way that I like factions in games. This gives you advice on, well, it gives you the overview of what contacts are, and then talks about using contacts, creating contacts, gaining new contacts. Then gives you a, a pretty comprehensive list of different types of contacts, and all in all, I think this is super helpful. Everything you need to know is there. The equipment section. Typically, I don't get excited about the equipment section in most books. I, I like it to convey some of the setting. Ideally, certainly does the job here. Looks well researched. Prices are in dollars. You've got the weights for a, a good list of different types of equipment, arms and armour, weapons, etc., Lodging is covered, as is vehicles and transportation as well. It's worth noting here on armour, obviously in a kind of modern setting, you're not walking around in field plate or chainmail armour, but there is a kind of an equivalent, and it's addressed by making comparisons to things like, say, I'll give you an example, light armour, a leather jacket or fencing smock. So character classes grant each character a certain set of class-related skills. These skills are covered in Chapter 5, and the designer stresses that skills have been left malleable. They've not been assigned to specific attributes, and the referee must decide what attribute is tested and if a skill applies. I'll give you an example of one of the skill entries. Under Larceny... This skill covers a wide range of criminal activities, including picking pockets, disabling alarms, opening locks, bypassing traps and other such actions. Larceny also measures a character's knowledge of the criminal underworld. The referee may call for a larceny feat when a character attempts to record a gangster in control of an area, tries to locate a savvy speakeasy or attempts to pinch a fellow's watch from his pocket. And another, survival, the ability to thrive in the wilderness. The survival skill covers hunting, fishing, trapping, foraging for edibles, finding clean water and tracking. The skill also allows for overland navigation and provides knowledge about terrain, flora and fauna. A survival feat may be necessary to follow faint tracks over grassy ground, deduce where a trap might best be laid or intuit a bear's intentions. Chapter 6 offers the option of character occupations, occupational specialities, if you like. It, uh, it's a way to offer background information about the character with the intention of informing roleplay activity. It doesn't represent... All the characters' skills is just an indication of what they might know or be able to attempt. And the way it works is if a character attempts an attribute feat that involves one of their occupational specialities, they are going to roll two six-sided dice as opposed to one. So if you're familiar with 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, that's the advantage mechanic. 
Aside from specialities, occupations grant equipment and some may grant special benefits or bonuses. Occupations also have an associated weekly income. Once a week you roll, the results of this roll will determine how much kind of disposable income you have after you've paid out for your ongoing weekly expenses. I'll just read out one of the occupation descriptions for the sake of clarity and to give you some idea and feel for their presentation. Taking the first one then, architect. Architects design and build structures and may work independently or for a government organisation. Architects start with two contacts of their choice and then there's a bullet point list. Specialities. Knowledge in brackets architecture, natural science, trade in brackets construction and research. Then possessions, there is listed a drafting table and tools, typical suit, small collection of architectural books and a portfolio, and the weekly income is $20 plus 3D6. In total, there are 30 occupations presented. I feel this will cover you for most eventualities. Chapter 7 is about playing the game and begins with an overview, a brief summary of how the game works in basic terms. It then moves on to talk about experience and advancement, then time and some of the typical nuts and bolts stuff that you imagine you would find in an RPG. That includes things like movement rates and adjusted movement based on the amount of stuff you're carrying, climbing rules, rules on employing assistance and how loyalty works. Then you have a table that shows you different types of assistance and their weekly cost for hiring those said assistants. And there's a nice list that reflects the setting you see on there the types of assistance that you might expect. It then moves on to talk about investigations, negotiation and diplomacy. Then you're into the combat rules, rules for surprise, determine, determining initiative and attacking. Also, this is where you're going to find your firearms rules. A departure from standard swords and wizardry or old school games. And a little bit of an upgrade on the more typical black powder stuff that you might find it introduces burst fire spray fire and a, a special rule for shotguns called uh, both barrels there's a brief mention of spells and invisible opponents and then there's a d6 morale system each um, opponent in the game has a morale score and to check morale you roll a d6 if the result is equal to or higher than the morale score the opponent stays in the fight damage and dying rules healing rules here we find some optional rules there's a rule for dead deadly peril which basically makes your game as it sounds deadlier there's a damage threshold rule and exploding dice you can also um, use an optional rule for first aid, which allows wounded characters to benefit from immediate first aid. 
There is also attribute damage in the game. Some spells and attacks cause damage to attribute scores. When this damage is not permanent, it's healed at a rate of one attribute point per day of full rest. Lighting. You've, you've got in the 1920s, obviously, some more reliable light sources. So there's rules for flashlights and carbide lights, as well as traditional lanterns and torches. Saving throws are a little bit different. There, a character will have a single saving throw, but then the referee could rule that that saving throw is attached to a, a relevant attribute at certain times. So, for example, save versus crushing and entanglement is listed as strength. And in those instances, if you've got a bonus, that is used with your saving throw. Um, another example might be illusions, magic and mind control. That's linked with intelligence. So rather than having multiple different saving throws, you just have the one and then your attribute bonus may or may not apply. As you might expect, the insanity rules take up a few pages. There's an explanation of when to use insanity versus when to use fear. The process of going insane is explained, as are insanity saving throws. There's an optional rule for mental recovery and lists of temporary insanities and phobias close out the chapter. And I should be clear that the insanities break down into two broad groups, temporary and permanent insanities. The Running a game chapter is advice for the GM, covers awarding experience and other awards, designing scenarios, talks about the Lovecraftian campaign and how you might achieve some Lovecraftian ambience. It closes out with some options for creating a more pulpy style of play. It's pretty brief, but I think it's good solid advice. The advice is clear to the point no nonsense not a lot of waffle and you don't feel overburdened by this chapter a good addition does what it needs to do and gets out of the way in the world of eldritch tales magic and occult sorcery are real possibilities the details for the rules are found in chapter 9 explains about learning and finding spells and casting a spell when you want to cast a spell, you do this by attempting a special attribute feat called a spell check. Each spell is tied to either intelligent wisdom or charisma and typically imposes a penalty to the spell check. You roll your d6, apply any relevant modifiers. These might come from your mythos law, your occupation or situational modifiers. And a result falling within the character's success range will indicate that the spell has been properly cast. Some spells have special requirements that must be met for the spell to work. But failure to cast a spell, once you've tapped into the energies of the cosmos, typically results in dire consequences. We've got 30 pages of spell descriptions, each description taking up roughly half a page. The, um, the pertinent information such as spell level, learn spell, casting time, spell check, range, duration 
and the consequences of failure are listed. And then you've typically got a couple of paragraphs of text describing the um, spell more fully. Um, I haven't counted them, but I'm guessing there's about 60 spells based on my quick calculation. Adversaries, beasts and monsters are dealt with in chapter 10. It presents you with a typical old school type of stat block that you might find in early editions of Dungeons and Dragons and then goes on to um, describe your typical Lovecraftian Cthulhu-esque bad guys. Chapters 11 and 12 are Eldritch Artifacts and Mythos Secrets. This is going to bring the sprinkling of Lovecraftian flavour really into your campaign. Covers mysterious tomes, weird science, sorcerous artifacts, some of the uh, geography that you find in the fiction, as well as things like hidden cults. Finally, you move into chapter 13, and that is uh, a scenario. I don't want to go into the details of it, but it seems quite comprehensive. There's sort of handouts. Oh, how many pages? 20 pages? No, yeah. The final full chapter, and I don't know how intentional this is, is chapter 13, Unlucky for Some, a starter scenario for Eldritch Tales. It takes place in Arkham in 1920s. Uh, it's got handouts, maps, all the sort of stuff you, you need. It introduces various different characters, and there's this, um, there's this strange artefact, shall we say, that turns up. Finally, there's an appendix one that deals with different eras of Mythos Earth. Give you a little bit of guidance and some ideas for running Eldritch Tales in a different time period with a different flavour of play. And then finally, appendix two covers inspirational material. You've got some authors and books, websites and a bibliography. Closing out the book is a character sheet that you can copy and hand out to your players. You may have gathered by now that I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this book. Uh, I just love the way it's presented. I like the way that the old school D&D has been tweaked. I'm very impressed. It's one of the it's one of my f sort of favorite books just on the appearance alone in my collection that's been put out by the sm uh, a smaller publisher you can pick it up on drive through print on demand there's soft cover and hard cover options i hope you've enjoyed this take a look if you're interested like i say i don't think you'll be disappointed and thanks for listening and that as they say is a wrap big thanks goes out to you the listener for taking a bit of time out of your day to listen to old Spike Pit. Take care and I'll catch you later.